We're in John chapter 3 today, so if you want to open your Bible, and in there we'll find some very familiar words. We'll read in verse 1 to 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one who has ascended into heaven, but who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. But he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world or condemn the world, but the world that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and, and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. In some ways, this passage is not easy to interpret. At a, at a superficial level, it all seems to make sense. But at a deeper level, there's, there's some quite complex things that are being written. It's full of symbolism. Light, dark, above, below, water, spirit, wind, truth. And all of these have double meanings within the passage that we can miss if we just skirt over it very quickly. And we can miss what Jesus is actually meaning by some of those terms. And yet, in the midst, right in the centre of the passage, there's one of the best-known verses in the whole Bible, John 3.16, which, along with John 3.17, brings clarity to everything else. For God so loved that he gave, that he didn't send his Son into the world to condemn, but to save the world. And so we'll attempt to unlock this passage as best we can. First of all, let's consider a Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the ruling elite in Jerusalem. And that probably meant he was wealthy as well, a wealthy man. 
He was a ruler. He was significant. He was a man of authority. He was a man with reputation. Jesus refers to him as the teacher in Israel. What a title that is. The teacher. Or one of the teachers. Significant man that's coming to Jesus at this moment. He was strict in terms of following the law. He wasn't a fly-by-night believer, somebody who comes and follows Jesus and then goes away again. He was following the law in, in all its detail. That's what a Pharisee did. And he was also one who was waiting for the coming of, of, of the Messiah. He was looking out for it. And this is one of the reasons why he comes to Jesus. Notice, he comes at night. What does that tell us? He didn't want to be seen. But actually, he doesn't come just on his own merit. He says to Jesus, um, we are wondering who you are. We. Who is the we there? Who is the we? There's probably a bunch of Pharisees there who have all been considering this character, Jesus, who's been going around teaching, who's been doing stuff, and are saying, is this the one? Is this the one? And so he comes. He's the one. When everyone took a step forward, he took, no, back, he took a step forward and he actually volunteers to come and actually speak to Jesus and find out who he is. And in coming to Jesus, he was trying to find out exactly who he is. Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that you've come from God, but, but who are you? That's what he's trying to find out. And he identifies Jesus as a teacher. And we see that word signs again. Remember that word keeps cropping up in the book of John? Signs. Chapter 2, verse 11, that Jesus did this first sign. And all of these signs that occur through the book of John are things that demonstrate who he is. No one can do these signs. They'd seen what Jesus was doing. They had identified who he was from the signs, or they thought they had, but they wanted to make sure. And so they're looking for him to confirm it, to endorse who he is. They couldn't escape the fact that the miracles Jesus was performing were the signs that indicated that perhaps he was the Messiah, the one they were waiting for. And clearly his purpose in coming to Jesus was to gain some confirmation of this fact. But Jesus completely sidesteps the question. And he puts it right back in Nicodemus' lap. Effectively, Jesus says, you're waiting for the Messiah to bring in his kingdom, but have no idea how to get into that kingdom and are going about it the wrong way. Nicodemus, as a loyal Pharisee, was seeking to do his best. But Jesus says, your best isn't good enough. There's only one thing that's good enough. You must be born again. You must be born again. There must be a change. There must be something that happens that is life-changing, that will cut through all of your religion, all of your belief, all of your understanding. Everything is going to be turned on its head. You must be born again. How many people are trying to get to their goal the wrong way? How many people do we encounter in the world day by day who are seeking happiness, satisfaction, peace, wealth, whatever it might be? 
And yet there's only one way that we will achieve happiness, satisfaction, peace. And that's through God. You must be born again. That's the only message that we have to bear. You must be born again. There is no other way to achieve the goals that we have in life. There's no other way to become all that God has called us to be. There's no other way to achieve all that, all that God has in his heart for us. There is no other way to become completely human. There is no other way to become all that God had in his heart when we were conceived in the womb. Or even before the world was created, when he looked through the eons of time and saw us. There is no other way to be all that we were ever created to be, except one. You must be born again. That's the message that must be on our lips as we go into this world. There is no other way. There is nothing else that's going to bring that satisfaction. There's nothing else that's going to bring peace. There's nothing else that's going to bring fulfillment. Everything else is a false God. Everything else is an empty promise. You must be born again. Jesus cuts through everything and says it. You must be born again. And how did Nicodemus respond in the narrative? Well, we don't actually know at the end. We know from chapter 7, verse 50 to 52, that, Jesus, that Nicodemus later defended Jesus' right to be tried properly. And we know that from chapter 19, 38 to 42, that Nicodemus was there helping Joseph of Arimathea prepare the body of Jesus for burial after his crucifixion. This tells us that the outcome of his conversation with Jesus had a lasting effect on Nicodemus. But we're never told that he actually became Jesus' disciple. Perhaps he did. Perhaps that's why this story is left in John's Gospel. Perhaps one day we'll know. Either way, he was left in no doubt as to who Jesus was. So let's turn to the dialogue now between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus cuts straight to the point when Nicodemus begins to speak to him. Rather than dwelling on his identity as coming from God, Jesus instead focuses on the most important issue for Nicodemus, the new birth as the means of seeing the kingdom of God. For a Pharisee living a pure life in accordance with the law, this was the means of seeing the kingdom. But Jesus cuts straight through his theology and tells him that his only decisive factor is the new birth. He doesn't debate the theology that Nicodemus comes with. He just gives him an alternative. And the notion of new birth completely confounds Nicodemus. He can't get his head around what Jesus is meaning. And he assumes he's talking about some kind of physical rebirth. And Jesus counters this by telling him he must be born of water and of the spirit. Water and of the spirit. Well, what does that mean? Hmm? Now we've got two conflicting opinions there. Water is baptism, or water is the water of birth, physical birth and spiritual birth. Well, actually, um, scholars are, uh, are divided on this whole thing. It could mean that, or it could mean that. So take whichever one you like. Either way, Jesus is leaving Nicodemus in no doubt of what that something at some stage the spirit must break into our lives to bring about this new birth, spiritual rebirth. And he talks about the spirit doing his own work, like the breath 
or like the wind. Now in the Greek, the word for spirit is the same as the word for breath, and it's the same as the word for wind. They're exactly the same word. It's the word pneuma. And so if you read, for example, verse 8, you could say, the spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. Or you could read it, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it's coming from or where it goes. So is everyone born of the wind. Which is it going to be? Translate it. The translator has obviously taken a particular view on it. But either way, what the point of what Jesus is saying is this. That the Spirit's work is mysterious. That he's working in the lives of people that we don't know. And there are people we are connecting with day by day. Who are, who, in whom the Spirit is already at work to bring them to that place of new birth. We can't prejudge what God is already doing in somebody's life. Who knows what tomorrow will bring? Who knows what work that he has already gone ahead to prepare? Our, work, our obedience, our, our responsibility is to be faithful and speak the word. And who, know, it might, who knows, it might be that word that triggers what the Spirit has already been doing to bring about that new birth in their life. God is at work in this world. God is at work in the lives of individuals. The Spirit goes, blows where he wants. He will do his work. He will bring people to faith. He will bring about that new birth in people's lives. Now at this point, Nicodemus really doesn't get it. And Jesus rebukes him as a result. You, a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these things. You don't understand the basic things about how the Spirit works. And in the same way, they, the Pharisees, do not really accept who Jesus is, even though they've seen his works and heard his words. They're not quite getting it. And so Jesus makes it exactly clear who he is. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying, he actually declares openly by saying that, I'm the one who's come from heaven. I'm the one you're looking for. He leaves Nicodemus in no doubt. And he uses this term, son of man. What does that mean? She's on the ball. Turn with me. Keep, keep John open. Turn that back to Daniel in chapter 7. And verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold the clouds of heaven, one like the son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations of men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. There in the years Nearly 600 years before Christ came, the prophet Daniel saw this vision of one called the Son of Man in heaven coming to the Father and being given the kingdom. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, I am that one. That's the power of what he's saying. I'm the one who's come from heaven. I'm the one whom the Father has already given the kingdom to. I am the Son of Man that Daniel saw in that vision. I'm leaving you in no no doubt as to who I am in the midst of this passage. You came to find out who I am. 
Well, I'm telling you who I am. I'm the son of man, and I'm fulfilling the vision of Daniel. He left him in no doubt. He answered the question that Nicodemus came with. And Jesus then, for the first time, indicates how he will die. Verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now to understand this, we need to go back to Numbers 21. So let's flip back to Numbers and 21. And verse 4. Then they set out from the Mount Hor, by the way of the Red Sea, to go round the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. They were only getting manna from heaven and quails and goodness knows, but they loathed this miserable food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, that, and they bit the people so that many of pe- people of Israel died. Watch out what you're complaining about. (laughs) So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord in you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And then Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if the serpent bit any man when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The people were moaning about the food God was giving them and about Moses' leadership. And this is after they've been in the wilderness for 40 years. Perhaps after 40 years you might get a bit tired of manna every day. Don't know. Don't know what it tasted like. Coriander and honey, I'm told, it tasted like. But they still have not learned. And so God allows poisonous serpents to come into the camp. And when the people come to Moses and ask him to intercede with God on their behalf, God tells him to make a brass serpent, put it on a pole, so that all who are bitten and look upon the serpent on the pole will not die, but will live. And this is laden with symbolism. The serpent, of course, is associated with sin and rebellion in the form of a serpent that Satan brought the first temptation to humanity. And they were bitten with sin so that it spread its poison through them. And this has led all humanity to being poisoned with sin. The guilt and the stain of corruption and sin. However, just as the Israelites could look upon that serpent when they'd been bitten and live, so we can look upon he who for our sakes became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might be the righteousness of God. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, literally, effectively became sin. And he bore sin on our behalf as he was lifted up from the earth. And just as when they looked upon the serpent that was lifted up, So it wasn't the serpent that healed them. It was their faith in what God had commanded. So when we look in faith upon what Jesus has done, being lifted up on the cross, so we were healed from the guilt of sin. We are healed from the corruption of sin. We are healed from the the poison of sin that has affected our humanity. 
In faith they looked in obedience and received their healing. And in the same way as we look in faith upon the one crucified for us, so the corrupting power, guilt and shame of sin is dealt with once and for all. As we believe in him as having died for us and for our sin, so we enter into new life. So Jesus makes clear to Nicodemus that his coming death on the cross would be the means that God would use to bring salvation to all. It's a powerful symbol. And yet it's the same, as Jesus prompt said, it's the same thing that God gave for deliverance for the people of Israel because of their sin. So he gives an even greater symbol for us, which is the Son of God lifted up. At this point in the narrative, the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus ends. Depending on your which scholar you believe. Verse 16 onwards, some people attribute as being Jesus continuing to speak. Others say that 16 onwards is John's um, commentary on what Jesus has already said. So either 16 to 21 are Jesus' words or they're John's words. Either way, it contains lots of truth. Either way, we take it as the word of God. But Jesus here, or it's being made clear that the purpose of Jesus coming from above was for us. John 3, 16 to 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but the work that the world might be saved through him. And I believe you can't take one verse without the other. The two have to work together. Jesus didn't come to condemn and judge. He came to save. He came as an outflow of love from the Father. And the reality is that God loves this world. God loves the people of this world. And he doesn't want any to perish. It says elsewhere, he wants none to perish. He wants none not to enter into the full salvation that God has for them. He wants all to come to a knowledge of salvation. But there is a step of faith required to look on him. We need to tell all to look in faith on Jesus and receive life. The world is poisoned through sin. The natural consequence of being poisoned is that eventually we will die. Jesus is the antidote to sin's poison. Faith in him deals with the poison so that we can enter eternal life and have assurance of being part of his kingdom. And verse 18 says this has an immediate effect on our lives. He who believes in him is not judged. He who doesn't believe has been judged already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. If we believe we enter and receive eternal life now, It's not something we have to wait for. It happens immediately. The moment we look on Jesus, we enter into eternal life. We get the new creation, the new birth. We are all spiritually reborn. Until such times, the physical part of it happens at Jesus' return. But we enter new life, we enter eternal life right now at the moment we express faith in him. But the converse is also true. If we reject him and all that he's done... We're already condemned. It's as if the day of judgment's already happened. It's happened now. For those who have consciously and deliberately rejected Jesus, they're already judged. 
They don't have to wait till the day of judgment. It's happened now. That's frightening. The outcome on that day is already assured. And rejection of Jesus is the guarantee of condemnation on that day. Recently, Ricky Gervais wrote a piece to affirm his atheism, stating that he leads a better life than most Christians. He may or may not be right on that, who am I to judge? But it completely misses the point. How good or bad we are is not the basis of eternal life, but only faith in or rejection of Jesus And this doesn't mean that our faith should not result in a changed lifestyle. Of course it should. However, that's not the criteria of judgment. The basis of our faith is belief in the historical figure of Jesus as the Son of God, sent into the world to bring salvation to all. And it's on that belief alone that we will stand or fall. And it's on that belief alone that we enter eternal life. And in 19 to 20, the writer makes it clear that judgment, this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The reason people reject Jesus is that they prefer to live in darkness but because by coming into the light our sin is exposed and has to be, has to be dealt with. The world doesn't wish to be accountable to anyone. And it certainly doesn't want anyone to suggest that the actions of individuals might in any way be sin. Somebody said about the course, and please forgive me, I don't want to highlight anything specifically, but when we did the course over six weeks, somebody said, is it helpful to speak about sin in this way? Well, yeah, actually, we've got to. Sin is the issue. Sin is what separates. Sin is what divides us from God. If we don't talk about sin, how are we going to talk about salvation? If we don't talk about the fact that sin's corruption has entered humanity, how can we talk about a saviour? What's Jesus going to do? If there's, why, what was the point of him coming and dying on the cross if there's no, no issue with sin? Sin is the heart of the matter, whether the world likes it or not. It may not be helpful in terms of people's sense of well-being, but actually they need to come into the light that it might be exposed, that it might be dealt with. When we come to God and stand in the light of his holiness, our sin is exposed. But this is why we don't have to condemn the world. It's not ours to judge. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. It's the light of the Father that illuminates the sin in our lives. And just as when the sun shines through the windows of a house and you see the dust in the, in the, the sunlight, well, you do in my house anyway. Suddenly that dust on every mantelpiece and on every sideboard is sh- shines up. And then we get the duster out and we run round and we... Stop digging, Richard. The hole is big enough. The light exposes the dust, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Same way as when we come into the light. 
all of that dust is exposed in our lives. But it's only exposed so it can be dealt with. So it can be got rid of. So that we can be cleansed. So that we can be given new life. So that we can be set free from the guilt and the stain of sin. And walk in newness of life. And it's coming into the light that will cause us to live appropriately. Especially as we continue to walk in the light as he is in the light. Nicodemus' encounter with Jesus would have left him in no doubt as to who Jesus was and what he came to do. And after the crucifixion and resurrection, Nicodemus would still have had a choice to make. Was he going to take Jesus at his word and put his faith in him as the only way to deal with sin and enter the kingdom? Or was he going to stick with his old ways of seeking to obtain entrance into the kingdom through following the purity laws and regulations We don't know what his decision was. But either way, each one of us will stand or fall by our own decision. To look upon he who was raised up for us to be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. It's only by looking on Jesus that we can be saved. Amen.